You're listening to the CPR of Life podcast, a show about creating community through connection, awakening potential, and uncovering the resilience of the human spirit through an understanding of state of mind. It's about living a life well-lived and uncovering what often gets in the way. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of having a conversation with Nick Bettini. Nick and I went through Clarity Coach training together. It's been a while since we've had a conversation, so I enjoyed catching up. First and foremost, Nick is a beautiful soul, as well as an author and a coach working in the music industry. Nick has just released a book, Just Play. It's a really, really good read, and I highly recommend it. We talk more about it during this conversation. So welcome, Nick. I'm very happy to have you on the show today. Nick and I did coach training together, and it's been a while since we've had a chat, but there's been a lot of amazing things happening in Nick's world since we chatted last. So Nick, do you want to tell um, our listeners a little bit about yourself? Hi, Jessalyn. It's, um, it's really cool to be here. Um, and thanks for having me on this uh, podcast. I'm a, a coach and I work in the music industry and uh, my background is as a musician. So originally I was um, trained as a violinist and then uh, learned other instruments as well. So the saxophone and flute and clarinet and bits and pieces of various other ones because I became a um, head of music for, for a few years at um, some schools in London. And most of my time now is spent working with musicians and performers of various kinds to help them get out of their way. It keeps you busy. Um, I, you've just published a book, which is a fabulous book. Uh, as I said to you offline, you're a beautiful writer. And when I first picked up the book, it's called Just Play, and I'll put a link for that in the show notes. When I first picked it up, I didn't realize I thought it would really, really be just music. But when I went through it, it's something that really all performers, it's something that all performers could read and benefit from. Um, but not even just performers, human beings in general. But what motivated you to write the book? It's a good question. I was spending lots of my time uh, throughout my musical training as a music student and uh, when I was training to become a music teacher, kind of doing my own uh, sort of self-help journey and uh, seeking, uh, sort of looking for ways to improve my own performance and trying to get the edge over other performers and um, just a lot of striving was going on that I kind of thought was all part and parcel of being a really top-notch performer but it was it wasn't a very pleasant struggle at, at times and um so I, I kind of was spending quite a lot of my time searching for for ways to uh, have the right mindset and uh, um learn better and be better and stumbled across some um some things that I found really helpful as a musician and I kind of thought, well, there must be a book about these principles that I was being taught for musicians. There must be a book like this because it's so useful and it's, um, it's made such a huge difference to me in the very short amount of time that I'd been around it at that point. And there wasn't a book. And I thought, 
I can't believe there's not a book. And there were, there were one or two other um, people who were talking about this um, in, the, in the field of, of performing arts, but there weren't really many people talking about it for musicians. So I just thought, I knew there was a huge need because I couldn't be the only person who was having those kind of struggles and there was no book. So I, I, I felt at the very least I'd like to read what came out, you know, as I was writing it for myself. And uh, it kind of, it kind of became, became a thing and it, it seems to have struck a chord with people that, that have um, read it so far. So um, it just seemed like the logical conclusion of all the, all the struggles and then finding, finding some solutions to those struggles, you know. So when you were looking before at self-help, what do you know what it is you were looking for? Like what, like what was it you were striving to get? Like you say, like maybe an edge on the other performers, but mm-hmm. was there something internally in you that you were looking for? I think what it was was that I was looking at lots of world-class performers, you know, like virtuoso violinists. I spent lots of time watching violin videos or or performances on YouTube and and stuff, trying to sort of look for clues as to how they were being so brilliant. So I was constantly looking outside of myself to somebody else that seemed to have all the answers. Um, And I was, I was constantly looking to, to get some of the magic that I thought belonged to them. And um, there's a level at which that makes sense because there's a, practicality to playing the violin or any instrument and sometimes you can see clues about physically how someone's getting around the instrument and you know that there are certain movements that you might make with your fingers or your arms that are more inefficient and you can a trained violin teacher can can see some of those uh you know technical blockages or what have you by by eye but i kind of assumed that that you could do that mentally as well that that you know i could see that they were confident and there would be something that i'd be able to pick up or i could watch a video and listen to how someone was talking about their performance and that would give me clues to their mental processes and i think like what i, what I was doing like a lot of performers that i that i talk to now is trying to reverse engineer um from sort of listening to people who had not really been doing much thinking about how they were um, creating these these fantastic performances. They were just busy getting on with it. They weren't thinking about the perfect mindset necessarily. They were just busy getting on with playing, um, which is which is what sort of led to the the title of the book. It's just it's, it's just just the music without all the extra stuff. So, you know, in answer to your question, I was I was striving to try and get some someone else's magic when I didn't even realise that the magic was in me and in everybody else, you know, it's kind of intrinsically there um, to have that natural capacity to um, develop your musicianship to the next level or your life to the next level, the, 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 um, the kind of natural, organic way that we grow and develop is just built in. It doesn't need to be um, added to or um, extended beyond what it can do naturally, perfectly. In your book, I thought it was interesting when you were talking about the kids who, when they were playing for an exam or getting ready for, not an exam, I'm not quite sure what it, what the proper term was, how they played a little bit, like, or they appeared, like their their demeanor was different than when they were just playing for fun, you know? Mm. And the only difference is, you know, what's in the mind about that, you know? So I thought that was interesting. I love the stories that you have in the book. It's really, they were interesting and... and um, 
it really helped put things into context, like the the power of of mindset and state of mind. When you t- like, it's it's about flow. I hear like a lot of performance um, artists and uh, sports players talk about getting into the flow, and it sounds to me like when you were looking for something in the self help section, <laughs> mm-hmm. it could be that you were you were looking for a book to help you find your flow. And yes. Definitely find that inside you. I, it was (laughs) the the funny thing is that, um, look, looking for flow is the problem. That was the thing that I I suppose that I realized is that that's sort of seeking what we think, uh, what we think of as being a peak state, you know, the, the perfect state to perform in. If you go looking for that thing, then by definition you end up spinning yourself in circles because there is no such thing as the perfect state now you know there's been lots um said about this thing they call the flow state as if there is this peak um state but really what it is and what i say in the book is that that's one side of a coin and the the the, the flow state is one particular gear that we go into and the other gear that we go into is is being more self-conscious more um seeing ourselves as separate and it's just these two fundamental gears that we go into we kind of create this illusion that we're this separate self um and that we have lots of control and that we can um uh, we our feelings are at the mercy of the outside world and then when we flip into what they call the the flow experiences when we, we're forgetting all those stories, forgetting this story of us, ourselves as a separate self, and we're just totally absorbed by the moment because we're not thinking about anything else. And it's those two fundamental um, modes that we can go into as human beings and understanding that both of those are healthy, which means we stop striving for one of them because we realize that both are okay. And, and, the irony is that when you when you stop striving for to to get the mind is generally more settled and you find yourself having those kind of flow experiences more of the time because there's less overthinking going on um so it's almost like you know in answer to your, to your question it's almost like letting go of the need to get into flow mm. means that you'll experience flow more of the time but it doesn't really matter whether you're in flow or not that's the point you know so it's kind of, it kind of sounds a bit i hear myself answering the question and thinking it sounds very zen and how can i apply that but it's, it's purely by someone seeing that they've got way less to do psychologically mm-hmm. than we're often told that we do by very well-meaning people um but there's just there's nothing to do psychologically there's stuff to do physically and um artistically and stuff needs creating and we want to practice our scales and all that stuff um but but psychologically there's no to-do list it's just have an experience that's all we have to do so how did you first come across this you know what the change for you you were on this search and you were on this journey of of looking and then you came across the three principles Mm-hmm. How did that like? How did that happen for you? Uh, um, so, I had done bits and pieces of, of um, training to as a as a um, hypnotherapist and um, as a teacher as well. And I was looking to um, move out of classroom teaching, and I found myself on a different training with a guy called Jamie Smart. Mm. Um, 
and I thought I was uh, there to, to learn about building a, a hypnotherapy business, really. That's what I was looking for at that time because I, I knew I was an uh, experienced teacher but not an experienced um, business person at that time. And, and then Jamie started talking about these uh, underlying principles that were the underpinning for the times when the hypnotherapy was working um, and explained the times when, when it wasn't working as well. And it, it suddenly became clear to me that um, there was something very powerful because it was so universal. It wasn't a set of tools and techniques. It was universal principles just of, of how every single mind works. And that was, um, that was kind of a, a revelation that then kind of uh, spread into my teaching that I was doing and, and all the, the work with, with clients and stuff. But it was a big, I wasn't expecting it, but it was, it was definitely a game changer. And that's why that's been the, the focus of my work since, since I met Jamie, really. Yeah, he has that effect on people. He <laughs> <It> seems to, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How long did it take you to write the book? Like, and I think it took me about a year and then a year of writing and then um, probably another six months of procrastinating about is it going to be good enough for people to to, to read and who am I to, to put this out into the world and like like everybody has with um, albums or books or you know you, you make this bold statement that you, you've got the answers um, to someone's problems and then I certainly felt like I, I sort of second guessed it but it, the, the book wasn't didn't take an awful long time to write itself it was just the, the final stage it took a bit longer what was your writing process like over that year was it just kind of where you something would come into your head and you'd write about it or was it something where you really sat down and spent a good chunk of your time just writing and writing that's a good question um the honest truth is that i think the biggest i i, I saw the i saw the need for the book and then suddenly thought oh if i was going to write a book about this what would be the main things that i'd want to say and probably in it was literally 20 minutes or 30 minutes. I had lots of pieces of paper around me and was scribbling ideas and trying to put them on uh, pieces of paper that would make up chapters. So just like total stream of consciousness on these pieces of paper. And then once I had the that kind of structure um, very broadly laid out, then I put that all into a Word document and then spent the next few months beefing out each of those chapters and trying to again sort of I had a stream of consciousness of, of bullet points and ideas not not proper sentences or anything and then spent spent the time joining it up and trying to make those as coherent as possible so it wasn't really start at the beginning I never I never started at the beginning of a chapter and wrote all the way through for any bit of the book it was always uh feelings that I wanted to convey and then try to just join it up and make the whole architecture go together I know, but people have very different writing processes. Um, mm-hmm. But, but the, the 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 main the main structure, the main uh, I guess the heart of the book was was born very very quickly, sort of in twenty minutes. But it was lots of refining and tweaking that took a long time. Um, and, and the interesting thing, actually, that I I learned because this is my first book that I'd um, published properly. You know, I'd, I'd sort of had ideas about writing other books, but um, the thing I hadn't really realised was the role of a of a professional editor who really knows what they're they're doing. Because you know, I, I looked at part of the reason that it took me a little while to, um, to to go from having the completed manuscript to then having it out in the world was because I looked at my my unedited manuscript and compared it to 
finished, edited, professionally produced books and thought, oh, it's not, it's not good enough. And I didn't realise the, 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 the magic that um, an, edit, an editor can, um, can work, even though I, my sentences made sense, but there was so much, uh, an, an editor just makes it so watertight and, and beautiful in, in the way that, it, that it's, it's not quite the same if it's not been, been given that magic touch. You know? So Joel Drasner did a, a, an amazing job of, of tightening everything up and we, we, we spent time looking at every full stop and, and uh, comma and, and spelling every word and it was just brilliant. So yeah, it was, um, it's been quite a, a wild, wild ride actually when I reflect on it now. It's cool. Who was the first person that you let read after you had written it? Again, I, I think I, um, I, I I was quite keen to make sure that the, the readers were were part of the process as it was being created. So I didn't. Um, I'm trying to think who I actually gave it to as the as the first person who read the whole manuscript. I can't even remember actually, but I, I know that I, I I shared I shared chapters and bits of chapters for many many. Mm. Whether there was anything that that wouldn't be wouldn't make sense to people. Um, as, as I went along, because I, I wanted to, to check that what I was saying was um, translating into into sort of musicians' worlds, you know. You know, so um, uh, I, I did consult quite a lot because I'd heard somewhere that Tim Ferriss uh, had sent lots of different bits of uh, his books to different people and consulted with a lot of people rather than just sort of writing in a darkened room and then praying for the best and then sending it out into the outside world and then getting mixed reviews. I wanted to get feedback at all points along the way. Um, so I, that, I suppose that was part of the writing process as well. I had, I'd kind of forgotten that, but um, it was hugely helpful because it, it helped refine and, and, and sort of make the metaphors um, hold up better, I guess. And, and um, it was also interesting that the, the, the number of different reactions that I got to the same chapter was so different it made me more confident to think actually no matter how I phrase it people are going to make of this book whatever they make of it so it's my job to kind of um, write write something that I feel happy with myself and that gives them the best chance of getting what I want them to get but they'll make of it whatever they do and it's the same thing that I'm seeing with um, Amazon reviews as well as that they people people latch on to different aspects of it because that's right for them to to get that from the book um but um it's been it's been round uh been round the block a few times by now lots of people have, have read it and have contributed extremely valuable uh contributions to it to, to them getting to this stage so that they, they feel like they're part of the you know if they're co-authors almost because it's they've been such an influence on it who in the music industry like um that you didn't know that you reached out to? Like, did you, like, what was that process like? Is it kind of like you're fearful for doing it, but, you know, excited to share kind of thing? Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, so when I first started writing, I um, I uh, had some guidance from um, a guy called Damien Mark Smith. Um, and one of the things that he encouraged uh, me to do was to um, imagine who would be the ideal person to write the forward or the ideal person to write testimonials for it you know and as, as I knew that there wasn't a book like this for the music industry I thought it's, it's really important for the book to to be read by people who are, who are heavyweights in the industry and it turned out um, that I had quite a few 
uh, <laughs> heavyweight contacts. It, it was the one step of uh, separation in my uh, friends. So I just, I just started letting people know um, that I was looking for high-profile musicians or influential musicians or, or in, musicians who would support the cause of um, mental health for musicians. And a friend um, knew... Uh, Susie Collier, who is um, Jacob Collier's mother, and Jacob's this amazing internet sensation whose whose career in in the space between writing the forward for the book and then uh, getting ready for the book to be released, his career has exploded beyond. So I'm you know I'm extremely lucky to have, have got him to write that that forward, given that his his reputation is now international. He's he's um, he's uh, Quincy Jones's uh, protege. Um, and, and lots of the other people, I kind of I, I reached out to on um, I reached out on social media to quite a lot of people and got deafening silence from many of them. Um, one person that I didn't know that I reached out to, who did get back to me, was Evelyn Glenny. Um, I just reached out to her on Twitter, and uh, she wrote a beautiful um, piece um, about the book. Um, and I think the rest of the people there, I, I knew. Through various other people, um, but um, yeah, it's, I think it's. I think until you start sort of looking for the, the ideal person to, to to support the book or, in, or endorse the book, I, you know, I hadn't I hadn't realised there were quite so many people who could who could help if only I asked them. And, and once, once they said yes, it was like, oh my god, there's a <laughs> there's a thing here, and it's created a whole a whole. Um, uh, you know, a, a whole phenomenon. So no, it's I've been really. It's been such a learning curve. I can't. I can't tell you. It's a journey now, and it's interesting. Like you're saying, because there are so many people in the music industry um, suffering. Like you see this all the time, where people are coming out with mental health issues or struggling with anxiety or depression. That this is something you think. In my head, I think, oh, if he reached out to them and said, "This is what I'm doing," but it's it's a lot more difficult. In some cases, it's easy if, if, if you have one degree of separation from somebody that, oh, I know, you know, but just kind of cold calling them. But it's such a such an important issue. It's really interesting because the on the surface, you know, there are lots of people in, in the public eye talking about mental health and many of them are from the music industry. But there, you know, there is still a, uh, a stigma. Um, and, and probably it's not, it's not necessarily that the public stigma, the public have got a good attitude to, towards mental health and, um, it's, it's getting better, but I, I think often, and this was definitely the case for me as a, as a music student, that I didn't even want to begin the conversation about saying there was any kind of, uh, I don't want to call myself an anxiety sufferer. I don't, I don't want to say that I have depression. I, I'm, I'm positive. I'm told I'm meant to be positive, you know, and I, I never wanted to even engage in that kind of conversation. And I, and I, I kind of encountered that from, from some people that, that don't want to, that, that they're scared of having a conversation like that because it, because it, it means they would have, they feel like they identify with there being a problem. And of course that's not what we're saying. We're saying that, that the ups and downs are, are meant to be there for everybody. Um, but it, it, I think it, there is still, um, among lots of people, this idea that, you know, in a very competitive industry such as music, that, that it's kind of expected that 
you're brilliant because you're naturally brilliant, you're naturally talented. And part of that is being confident. And if you're not confident, that means you're not naturally talented. And so you don't want to admit that there's any kind of downside or, or self-consciousness. It's just, everything's okay. And I don't want to talk about it. Thanks. You know, and I'll struggle on and my, my ability to keep going, um, is what sets me, sets me apart from everybody else. And, and that's, I, that's why I've, I've kind of, um, pitched the book in the way that I have, because I've, I've, I've made it as easy for those people who are striving for excellence to start to look at the whole issue of, their own headspace and not to say that they have a, a mental health problem because they, because they don't, but, but to, to start to, um, examine the, the role that thought plays and, and the role that, um, their innate resilience is always playing. Um, cause if I'd have written, you know, the, um, the musician's guide to performance anxiety, I think many people who should be reading that book wouldn't be reading it, you know? Um, so it's, a, it's an interesting one because people, uh, start reading it in one particular frame of mind and then they, they, they look at it in a different way by the end. That's the, that's the plan. And it seems to be the, the way that people are taking to it, you know? I think in general, like, and here's the thing, when mental health to me and when I'm talking about mental health, it's mental health is being able to understand that life does ebb and flow, you know? Um, and I think often people, look at the term mental health in a derogatory way when mental health like being mentally healthy means that you do like I mean you're going to have days when you have an off day or a moment when you have an off moment and you're going to have a moment where you could you know shout it from the stars about how good you feel and mm -hmm. both of those are okay and you don't have to do something with either one and I think that conversation doesn't happen enough in life in general with human beings just showing up Mm. and when they don't they put on this mask and then that mask <laughs> if there's so much anxiety or, or stress trying to keep up the appearance there's a there's a british show keeping up appearances is that still yes oh i think it's the, <laughs> a vintage show that one but it's um yeah, it's very famous yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> that just came to mind my parents <laughs> that show. but it's one of these things where we spend so much time keeping up this appearance um and what I found is that having these conversations and having a book like yours makes such a difference because it opens people up to saying, huh, you know, sometimes I feel this way, but at least talking about it. It's, it's interesting because it, discovering um, these, the, the principles in the book that I learned from, from Jamie and from, from some other um, people as well, you know, if I now reflect on what it was like to be, you know, the, the Nick of say, I don't know, 10 years ago, that I, that the kind of the person that I was writing the book for actually, you know, an older version of myself, um, there's almost something about hear, hearing people talking about mental health and, and, um, well-being that, seem, that seemed a bit too sort of touchy-feely and a bit too woo-woo and a bit too oh it's going to be okay when really of course everyone knows that you you know if you want to achieve anything worthwhile you've got to really struggle and, and work hard and I, I I definitely felt that I had to self-flagellate and self uh you know just punish myself to, to be able to get anywhere it was it was such a um deep-rooted assumption that I had to suffer 
Um, and that was virtuous. You know, it was virtuous as a musician to to work until you've got calluses on your fingers or, you know, you hear stories about people's, uh, you know, like John Coltrane's gums bleeding because he was playing uh, for, for so many hours. And, and those are kind of worn as a badge of honour for, for some musicians. And, and there's kind of an element of, uh, you know, it, it shows how dedicated people have become. But to think that that and uh, to be able to talk about well-being is somehow dumbing down, that that's... That was definitely a huge misunderstanding that I had. And I see that same kind of thing going on, particularly in those kind of high pressure, um, or what's perceived as a high pressure environment, like a, a music college or um, people who are striving to get auditions for, say, orchestral jobs or, or, or something like that, where, where people feel that their, their whole career is, is, is built or, or broken on how hard they can work. Um, it's... It's purely a, a different um, perspective, you know. That's that's all that's really separating them from having a a much easier ride. Um, but that's that's obviously why why I wrote the book to show them that there was there's this blind spot for for you know for many people in the music industry. Do you think it's just in the music industry though? Because I think it's the same anywhere. Like I mean, in the corporate world, and you know, it's it, it's are you answering your you know, your messages at this time at night showing how hardworking you are, how many you know hours in a day you're working. Mm. There seems to be this cultural acceptance that that's, that's what defines you as being successful and in a lot of, like across a lot of ranges of, of you know, whether it be in sports or with business, um, that you have to really like grind, you know, mm. to be considered a success when... I think of my dad. My dad was such a hard worker. He had this mindset that, you know, he was, I remember he was sick and he was told to take off six weeks of work. And, you know, after he was out of the hospital within one or two weeks, I think it was, he was right back to work. Like there's this mindset that you have to work hard to be thought of as successful when really you and I both know where that, that perception comes from. But there is a cultural mm. kind of, norm around that or acceptance around that yeah you're right it's not it's definitely not just a music thing um and i think there's a there's a kind of there's a built-in misunderstanding because you know hard work makes sense to me you know people who achieve a high level of, of skill in any domain have put in quite a lot of time that's generally true um and you don't you don't master a musical instrument or uh, become a master salesperson or, or have a really thriving business by not having put in a load of time and, and attention. But, but, to, but to think that it's, to think that it's essential to have this kind of psychological striving, the psychological bit, I mean, not, not the, um, hours of doing stuff and hours of taking some actions um, which includes having a break, by the way, you know, I, you know it, it's part, part of the process might be to, to do very little, um, and, and give yourself the space to, for ideas to breathe. Um, it's all a decision that you, that you make to, to take action or to, to relax or, or what have you. But, but I think the place that I see a lot of people getting stuck is, is thinking that, you know, good practice, for example, for a musician should be, uh, constantly 
it should feel difficult all the time and it, and it should it should be always feeling challenging um but you know if we stop and think about that we we know that those times when we're admiring someone who seems to be doing something in such an effortless way um we know kind of instinctively that they're not making effort, you know, but we tell ourselves this story that, oh, it's because they're so brilliant that for them, their experience is effortless. Whereas mine, I have to work really hard and have this psychological struggle in order to feel so effortless. And of course, those two things don't go together. So, you know, when someone, when someone's um, a bit more comfortable with making very little psychological effort um, and, and the kind of action, that need to take flow very easily then they'll then they'll take a lot of action because it doesn't make sense not to you know if you know I, I think of those those students that I've, that I've taught who have been very young violin students they just they don't think twice about playing until they don't want to play anymore but they, they might play all day long and 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 stop when they feel hungry or, or stop when they feel tired or whatever and then pick up the violin and then do some more messing about and somehow they've clocked up thousands and thousands of hours because they haven't think they haven't been thinking that they've got to prove anything about themselves because they've done their six hours today or they've clocked up their magical 10,000 hours of practice to become world class or something it's just it's made sense to them to keep practicing or it's made sense to them to a, you know to a business person to to keep making calls or, or what have you it's just it's it's the difference between it having to be psychologically difficult or psychologically effortless you know and of course the the effortless bit <laughs> is what everyone wants yeah yeah um performance psychology in the music industry is that a big thing um there's there's lots of people interested in it for sure um and i think i guess what's exciting about um the kind of phase that we're going into now is that um there's more people i think are kind of becoming aware of the fact that it's a, it's a, it's an area that say a performance psychologist or a coach like me you know it's 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 worth talking to people who 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 make that their their focus because i think for a long time uh, there's some great teachers of course in you know, like music colleges or or schools but but they teachers who are who are talking to people about um, something like performance anxiety they give their best attempts to explain how the mind works based on uh, a mixture of like things that they've tried and that they, they, they think has worked for them um, or old wives tales or the tried and trusted tried and tested um, practice makes perfect type maxims that that come out um, and it's kind of like this folk folk medicine approach to um, to psychology and some of it hits the nail on the head and some of it doesn't. And, um, so I, I think musicians are, are waking up to the, the potential for, you know, for that to, to, to sort of unlock in their craft in the same way that sports people have known about it for quite a long time. Oh. Um, and when, you know, when I say that to musicians that I'm a, I'm a coach that works in the same way that a sports psychologist does, but for musicians, they go, Oh wow, I didn't realize that was a thing. Um, it's almost like they thought that it's always about talent or it's always about their teacher yeah. um, rather than thinking that they could even talk to anybody about um, performance psychology specifically, you know, because the thing is that, that, you know, musicians like sports people pretty much with their, with their craft, they've, they've got the, the capacity to figure out the technical details for themselves. They don't need someone like me to tell them 
uh, the, the the fine details of, of how they should practice or what they should do. They just need someone to help them clear the deck so that what they want to do can happen effortlessly, um, and then they shine, you know. What I found from reading your book is that um, it doesn't matter. It, it, it goes across so many... <laughs> so many levels that anybody like I'm, I'm definitely not a, a musician or <laughs> musically inclined in, in, in my, apart from my own opinion about that, but it doesn't matter. Like there's still so much in the book that's, that's so relevant to life in general. So I, I, you know, while I think this is a great book for, you know, people like, you know, anybody in the music industry, but also like those who are artists and, um, you know, sports players and, but also just people in general, like it, it, it breaks things down into such a beautiful sim- and simple, I don't mean that in a negative way, but anybody I think could pick up the book and read it and get a lot out of it, even though your target might've been for musicians. I suppose that's, that's the most beautiful thing you could say actually, because, you know, I, I didn't, or I, it's packaged for musicians. That's true. Mm-hmm. I thought there was a, there, there is a need to sort of um, lots of lots of musicians really identify with being a musician. So if I didn't call it mm-hmm. you know, the simple truth behind musical excellence, if the word music wasn't there, then it wouldn't make them pick it up. And I really wanted it to be accessible to that world. But but you, you know you're right. When I was when I was writing the thing. Um, the reason that I wrote it was nothing to do with music. And I say it in the book, it's not a book about music. It's, it's, it's about how every human being, um, works. Um, and, and out of that, an understanding for how we work comes performance in its broadest possible sense, whatever performance means doing stuff, living, having an experience being, you know, um, so yeah, that's that's lovely. It's, I'll, I'll take that. <laughs> that's just—I mean, it's—it's it's really kind of what came through when I was reading it because I think I had this expectation of it being kind of really <laughs> for those in the music industry. And then I read like, and, and I just thought, wow, and I, you know, and I was reading through, and it's—it's a—it's a gentle read. Like it's—it's it's got so much stuff in there, but it's also a very gentle read. Like it's—it's. It's, um, it's one that I would definitely recommend to people for sure. So I, I hope it goes well for you. So it's been launched. Mm-hmm. And is the official launch, has that happened yet? Or is that coming up? Um, it's, we're, we're doing a big bestseller push um, at, the, at the beginning of November. So um, there's, a couple of, there's a couple of days that we'll be encouraging people to, um, to buy, their, buy their copies to, to try and get it to, to number one. Um, in various different Amazon platforms, but I mean, it's, it's looking fairly likely that we're going to do quite well because it's already done well without yeah. leveraging some large um, groups, you know. And there've been some big, there are some there are some people associated with the book who've got some very large uh, followings on various different social media platforms and stuff. So I'm I'm quietly, dare I say, it, optimistic oh. that we, we could we can do it. But. Oh. <laughs> Now, is it something where, like, you could take this and go into, like, music schools or schools and, and, and talk to, like, young and upcoming performers about it? Is it something that you're hoping to do? Well, I just, I, I lost that last bit there. Oh, sorry about that. Um, is that something you're hoping to do, is kind of take this to younger, budding musicians and 
Maybe. Yeah, it's actually something I was talking about yesterday. Um, uh, there's a yeah, I, I'm, I'm I'm taking it to to music colleges in the in the UK. So so people who are exactly the the, the point in their career that I discovered that that um, that I needed some help. Really, um, it just it, it's kind of a a pressure point in people's careers when they're studying and really striving to get into those auditions. So um, working with the music colleges is something I'm really really passionate about because I, I just think there's, there's such a huge need and, and they're, they're so motivated and so brilliantly talented these these young musicians that um having this message at that time i think will just be a, a great kind of counterbalance to all that striving and that clear desire to do brilliantly but if they if they're able to give themselves a little bit of a break and a bit of space creatively i think they'll I'm just I'm very excited to 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 think of what could come out of of sharing it with with student musicians you know um well, we did uh, a colleague and I um a colleague Robin Lockhart and I did a mm. um a, a project at um Trinity College of Music in London that was um well received and we're, we're looking to to roll that out across other institutions so um that's the plan definitely mm. Nick if you wanted to leave our listeners with a piece of advice or wisdom and share something what would that be i'm tempted to say the title of the book because i keep i keep joking apart i i um so many people it seems to resonate with them you know this this idea of of being able to just play and and you know being able to um kind of embrace the light-heartedness that's inherent in life you know life inherently has a sense of humor, has a kind of playfulness about it. And, and you know, music or dance or um, comedy or any of those things wouldn't exist if that wasn't, if that wasn't the case. So um, I think there's room for us all to, to take ourselves a little bit less seriously. And when that happens, we just do, do some great, great things. We make the world a better place. So just play. <laughs> nice. Well, Nick, that's a good place for us to finish for today. So I want to thank you so much for taking the time to have a chat. I know it's a it's an exciting time for you and I'll be watching and cheering you on. Thanks for inviting me. Well, thanks for the chat today. Thanks, Justine. I really enjoyed chatting with Nick. He's such a chilled soul. When I first picked up his book, I was interested in reading it because he had written it. I wasn't far into the book when I realized the message in his book is one that all humans, whether performers or not, should be aware of. I encourage you to pick up a copy. Here are a few thought bomb takeaways from our conversation. Mental health, and by that I mean being mentally healthy, is the same for those in the music industry, sports, artists, business, etc. It's really the same for all humans. Searching for the magic and the success of others is futile. Your own magic is within. Resilience isn't defined by hard work, practice, etc. It's something innate. We don't have to search for it. It's within each and every one of us. And finally, if you go looking for a flow state outside of yourself, you will be on an endless search. Thank you for listening. I'd be grateful if you could leave a review on iTunes. If you have any comments or feedback, please don't hesitate to reach out. Until next time, be well. Be inspired. Be you. If you like what you just heard, we hope you'll share this podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with Jessie Lynn, please check out the contact page on her website, jessielynnmcdonald.com. 
Also, we'd be beyond grateful if you would leave us a review. Join us next time for another edition of the CPR of Life.